Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 46, New England Confederation. My apologies that this week is a week delayed. I wasn't too well last week and needed to take a week off to recuperate, but now I'm back and ready to go. Special thanks to our newest pioneers, listeners Paul and Patricia. Thank you. I couldn't do the show without you. In our last episode, we got back to New England after spending some time with the Dutch and the Swedes. We looked at Plymouth as it underwent radical transformations in the 1630s and 1640s, both domestically to become Plymouth Republic and externally, as it was subject to immense pressure from its larger neighbour to the north, the colony of Massachusetts Bay. It is to Massachusetts that we turn today, along with the other colonies of the region. We last dealt with Massachusetts in episode 33, so it's worth giving the topic a bit of a refresh. We dealt with the process of founding a New England town and the Massachusetts economy, and also gave some analysis of the political system. You see, while New England was deeply Puritan. Puritan was a bit of a catch-all term. There were many different variants of Puritanism, which each gave the New England colonies a distinctive character. Plymouth was founded by separatists, which gave it the deeply democratic organisation that we discussed at length in the previous episode. In stark contrast to this, Massachusetts was more oligarchical, It viewed government as sacred and a God-given institution, rather than something that had anything to do with the people. It took until the mid-1640s for political pressure to build up to the degree that popular reform was made, and finally the General Court became a bicameral legislature, a lower house of deputies and an upper house of assistants to the governor. I can indeed surmise this by quoting the historian John Dickinson, whose essay, The Massachusetts Charter and the Bay Colony, 1628-1660, appears in the book Commonwealth History of Massachusetts, Colony, Province and State, in five volumes. Quote, The essential feature of Massachusetts government during the first generation of its history can be summed up in one word, centralisation. A concentration of influence, power, offices, functions of every kind in a small and compact group of leaders. Yet, under the surface of this centralisation, a development was going on which was ultimately to undermine it. This was the growth of towns and town government, Massachusetts was settled at the outset by groups rather than individuals, not by isolated pioneers, but by parishes and congregations which transplanted themselves from England and sought to reconstruct their communal life in the new environment. The leaders at first looked with dislike on this process of desperation and sought to keep a firm hand upon it. They passed an order that no new plantations were to be set up without leave of the governor and assistants, and they assumed the right to appoint local officers, constables and the like, 
for those which had already been established. But the process of town formation outran the control of the magistrates. New communities came into existence as squatter settlements and named officers and levied rates without authority from the government of the company. The leaders soon bowed to the inevitable. Each town was given the right to manage its own affairs, to make ordinances and enforce them by penalties, and to choose its own local officers. And an even more important function was conferred on the towns in connection with the distribution of land. As town after town was set off, the greater part of the land in the colony ultimately came into their possession for subsequent distribution to individuals. Each town thus became a close economic community, with a direct interest in admitting or excluding new members. End quote. Now that we are fully refreshed, we can begin to press on into new material. What I want to talk about today is the United Colonies of New England, more commonly known as the New England Confederation. The defining feature of the American colonies during the 17th century is their mutual independence. Each colony was effectively in control of itself, almost an independent state. We saw this take itself to its logical conclusion in Virginia with Bacon's Rebellion. The English reaction to Bacon's Rebellion, which we'll get to eventually, forced the 18th century empire to be very different to the 17th, focused instead upon the subjection of each state by the motherland. But that is all in the future. Mutual independence. There were, at this point, two groups of English colonies. In the north was New England, and in the south were what I am still going to call the Chesapeake colonies, although they were developing into what will form the heartland of the south. Of these southern-slash-Chesapeake colonies, we've only dealt with Virginia so far, but there was also Carolina and Maryland. While there might have been occasional border disputes, for the most part, each of these had clear boundaries, and were all set up by royal charter. In contrast, the position of the northern slash New England colonies was more precarious. Their land holdings were not based on royal charters. Connecticut and Rhode Island would not gain royal charters until the 1660s. New Haven didn't have a charter either. Plymouth had tried to get a charter, but because of Allerton had been unable to do so. New Hampshire and Maine were both sort of provinces due to the complicated system of land grants, but were both dominated by Massachusetts. The colony of Massachusetts Bay was the only colony to actually have a royal charter, but it was technically an open rebellion against the crown. The point I'm trying to make here is that in contrast to the relatively simple legal organisation of the South, the North was a mess. Despite this, and all the contradicting land grants, there was a lot to be said for the unity of the New England colonies. They had a similar religious and legal system, and collectively enjoyed popular government. They were also surrounded by many potential threats. The French were far to the north on the St. Lawrence, but there were closer concerns. 
there were many potentially hostile Indian tribes in the area, and then there were the Dutch. We've already covered the rising tension between the English and the Dutch in the 1640s and 1650s extensively, so I won't needlessly repeat myself here. They were also worried about events back in England. King Charles and Archbishop William Lord might make a move to repress them. This gave the various colonies an idea. Wouldn't they be safer if they formed a union? Now, I don't want to stretch this too far, but it's impossible to ignore what this is. What was being suggested here was the first union to ever occur between the American colonies. The United Colonies of New England is the first in a series of experiments which will lead to the Philadelphia Convention in 1787 and the United States of America. It was only small, and no one at the time had any idea that this was where the idea would eventually take them 150 years later, but a union was first mentioned by Puritan leaders in 1637. Plans became more concrete in 1638. Massachusetts made a proposal to form a union with Connecticut, Plymouth, and New Haven, but the other three colonies rejected the idea, worrying that the proposal would give too much power to the newly created federal government. Had he been there, I'm sure Thomas Jefferson would have approved. Sorry, sorry, I've been listening to a lot of Hamilton over the past few weeks. The two most influential men in Connecticut, Haynes and Hooker, tried to revive the idea in 1639, fearing possible encroachment into Connecticut from New Netherland, but they were unable to get Massachusetts on board. The idea came up again in 1640. Connecticut, New Haven, and Rhode Island sent a joint letter to Massachusetts, again proposing some sort of defensive pact. Massachusetts was in favour, in principle, but had to reject this proposal, because she would not be involved with Rhode Island. You'll recall from the episodes where we set up Rhode Island that there was quite a degree of hostility involved in the foundation of Providence. Nothing happened for two years, but the matter came to a head in 1642. There was an increase in Indian activity, and the New England states were greatly concerned. Connecticut drafted a proposal for Massachusetts this one including both Plymouth and Maine, although I'd be cautious about mentioning this. Maine shouldn't be considered a full colony, more an area of Massachusetts with a complicated legal background. Massachusetts considered this idea, and it was decided to move the matter forward to something which will become very familiar to us as we advance in the story. What I might hesitantly describe as a constitutional convention. In the spring of 1643, Massachusetts, Plymouth, Connecticut, and New Haven sent delegates to Boston in order to draft Articles of Confederation. Winthrop, Dudley, Bradstreet, Gibbons, Tying, and Hawthorne from Massachusetts, Winslow and Collier from Plymouth, Haynes and Hopkins from Connecticut, Eaton and Grigson from New Haven, it's also worth noting that this short-lived Saybrook colony sent a single representative, Fenwick, 
But Saybrook was absorbed into Connecticut in the next year, so it's not really worth paying much attention to this. What they created was a Puritan League, which is why Rhode Island, with its religious toleration, could not be admitted. It was also not particularly important since it was surrounded by the English colonies and had a very small population. It wasn't necessary to be in the Union. At the time, it wasn't clear in what direction this would go. England was entering its civil war, and for the moment the colonies would have to look after themselves. The delegates were treated like ambassadors from independent states, reflecting the character of 17th century colonialism we discussed earlier. It's impossible not to view this as a precursor to Philadelphia, although history decided that this wasn't the moment the colonies would launch their bids for independence just yet, so let's discuss what they decided. They created the United Colonies of New England, or the New England Confederation. Each of the four colonies would elect two commissioners, who both had to be members of the Congregational Church. They would meet yearly, every September. They would manage peace, war, and foreign relations for the colonies. They would also determine how each foreign expedition would be financed in terms of manpower and currency between the colonies, the determining rate being the number of men aged between 16 and 60 in each colony. If the Confederation was invaded, Massachusetts would immediately raise 100 men and the other three colonies 45 men each, although this would then have to be ratified by six of the eight commissioners. The Confederate government also had some civil power, but it was made certain that they would not infringe upon the rights of each colony. Any action needed six commissioners to vote for it, and if a motion received less support than this, it would need to be voted on unanimously by all four general courts. The body would meet in all the capitals of the colonies, but in Boston twice as much. It's interesting to note that this confederation would only have a legislature. There was no executive branch. I don't mean this in the sense that there wasn't a president, there was, but it was more of a presiding officer. What I mean is that it is the function of the legislature to legislate, and then of the executive branch to execute the order. But there was no executive, and therefore in order to implement any decisions taken by the legislature, it relied upon the four general courts. There was a provision in the body that a dissenting opinion must be noted and a reason given. It's interesting to note that this feature has survived and exists in the Supreme Court of the United States today. Although dissenting opinions were rare, discussion was open, and it seems like the representatives acted as statesmen. This, in 1643, is where we'll leave things for today. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then please consider signing up for membership. You can do that at the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com. You can check us out on social media, facebook.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast, and Twitter at historyjamie. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, then feel free to send me an email. The address is thehistoryofpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. 